Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, I'm welcoming Richard Stearns to the show. Richard is President Emeritus of World Vision U.S., where he served as president for 20 years, traveling more than 3 million miles as an advocate for the world's poor. Before leading the Christian Relief and Development Organization, he was corporate CEO at both Parker Brothers and Lennox. His best-selling books, The Hole in Our Gospel, was named the 2010 Christian Book of the Year. Among the honors Stern received for his humanitarian services are five honorary doctoral degrees, the Julie Vidala Taft Outstanding Leadership Award from InterAction, and the Christian Leadership Alliance's highest honor. Rich and his wife Renee have five adult children and six grandchildren and live in Bellevue, Washington. Let's welcome Rich to the show. Uh, Welcome. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Well, that was a pretty comprehensive uh, bio you gave. Um, I might just mention that I grew up in Syracuse, New York, which is famous for being the snowiest city in the United States with hmm. uh, 10, 10 feet of annual snowfall. Wow. And uh, and I went to school not far from there at Cornell University, uh, where I got my degree, uh, my first degree. But um, yeah, so now my wife and I live out in Seattle, Washington, and we have six grandsons all around the country. So, Well... Uh, my father grew up in a little town in upstate New York called Friendship, New York. I don't know how close it was to to Syracuse, and I visited there certainly as a kid, but we since moved out west, so I don't really know the upper New York geography that well. Yeah, well, it's covered with snow, so that's all you <laughs> need to know. <laughs> Probably even now it's still covered with snow. Yeah. I'm so grateful to live in Colorado where the snow comes and it goes. There you go. Well, uh, talk about uh, your your journey of faith and what uh, looking what that looked like to to know and follow Jesus for you. Yeah, so I'll try to do a short version of it. But I I was raised uh, um, kind of nominally Catholic. My my parents had been divorced and um, therefore you know were not welcome at the church at that time. And uh, mm-hmm. so they kind of sent my sister and I off to church uh, from time to time, but um, we'd go alone. And uh, so I, you know, as I grew up and grew older and went to Cornell and studied neurobiology, you know, I kind of drifted toward atheism or at least agnosticism. And mm-hmm. um, and then uh, my senior year, I met my future wife, and uh, she was a committed Christian. And again, that's a long story, but... Uh, uh, over the course of that first year where we were dating, um, uh, I ended up doing a lot of uh, reading about Christianity. Uh, I started reading C.S. Lewis and John Stott and apologetics and comparative religion and philosophy and biblical archaeology and all of this stuff. Uh, while I was working on my MBA, I was reading this uh, theology stuff. And I made a a very uh, conscious decision uh, when I was at the Wharton School of Business that I was going to be a follower of, of Christ. I, I was convinced by my reading that the gospel narratives were true and that uh, Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that changed everything for me. And mm-hmm. 
I think sometimes when you when, when you don't really have religion and you discover it uh, as an adult, I was a young adult, um, you, you have a better sense of what it means because you hmm. you know you, you go yeah. from not believing to believing and it's kind of a shocking commitment that you know you're all in. I mean you you, you understand you know, you didn't just you didn't just uh, take your parents' faith and yeah. you know personalize it. You you had to come from unbelief to belief, and so yeah, so that's what happened. I was I think 24 years old and became uh, a believer and. Uh, Never looked back after that, and uh, you know, have have grown in my faith. You know, ever since is what I what I try to do to to grow in my faith uh, continually. So, what has been a, a spiritual practice that you've developed or might recommend to others? You know, um, I always kind of start by you know just reminding everybody that. Um, you know, when we make a commitment to Christ in our life, um, the first step is really understanding God's purpose for our lives. And I talk about this in my book, Surrender, you know, surrendering, uh, you know, all aspects of your life to God. And um, um, I think a lot of Christians don't really fully understand that, that Christianity is not something you you tack onto your life and, you know, just continue living the way you always did. It's yeah. It, it's a it's a it's a drastic change in worldview and and in your purpose. So first, it's understanding that God has a purpose for your life that is much that sits above your work, your career, your family, mm-hmm. and and that purpose is uh, is critical that uh, in terms of ordering your your worldview. But but once you understand that, um, you know, for me, spiritual practices are. Uh, obviously, reading scripture. I've been in a, a Bible study of some sort uh, for the last forty-five years, uh, every year, mm-hmm. uh, and that's important with other couples. Uh, my wife and I have been in these couples Bible studies, and it helps you process your Christian faith with other people, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they're processing their Christian faith, and you know they're struggling with different issues, career, family, whatever it might be, and you are as well, and. Uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, and you you kind of share your faith with some other people at a more intimate level, and I, I think that's an important discipline. And then, you know, certainly prayer, and I, I like to read Christian books. I like to read theological books, and you know, I read a lot of I've read a lot of C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright and mm-hmm. Scott McKnight, and just various Christian authors that you know help me deepen my understanding of of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well. Your theme, uh, talking about having a purpose, uh, I found that much throughout your book here, Lead Like It Matters to God, so I can tell that it's an important part of your life ethos and and life's purpose to share that with others. You know, that's what I've tried to do in my book is kind of share some of the things I've learned um, in various ways with with potentially younger believers who might be in a different place on their journey. Well, let's jump in and and talk more about it. You kind of you kind of hinted already there that this book is kind of meant for younger believers, uh, still trying to to navigate how to live. I imagine their faith in in the broader culture. Um, anything you don't like to else you'd like to share, kind of about kind of your ideal reader, so to speak. Yeah. So for a number of years, I've been thinking about writing a book on leadership. Uh, first of all, I'm a believer. You should only write about things you actually know about. Um, and so my first two or three books were 
about poverty and justice issues because mm-hmm. as president of World Vision, I had a lot of experience and I'd visited many different countries and cultures and, you know, had a deeper understanding of, you know, what the Bible says about poverty and justice. And I wanted to share that with uh, my readers. But the leadership book, you know, having been the CEO of two secular companies uh, in the corporate world and then 20 years as head of a large Christian ministry, kind of an unusual career. And so along the way, you learn a lot of things about leadership. And for me, the particular subject of how does Christian leadership differ from secular leadership? Yeah. Um, and and I just think it was an, uh, an important. There's an important message here. I think especially today, we're we're in a moment when our values seem to be uh, under assault in a variety of ways. You know, we've seen corporate scandals. We've seen the Me Too movement uh, revealing terrible behavior yeah. in every sector of society. We've uh, we've seen very significant uh, ministry and church leader failures. Uh, yeah. Um, we've seen our politics turn uh, craven, <laughs> yeah. if you will, in terms of things like integrity and truth-telling and, and empathy and, and uh, uh, love of neighbor and uh, those kinds of things. So these values have been really through the ringer the last number of years. And I just felt a book that reminded Christian leaders that uh, it's our character that matters more than anything else we do. And and uh, character is our witness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, wherever we work, uh, what people see is the reflection of our faith in Christ. And if they see a person of character, if they see someone who tries to embody the attributes of Christ, uh, um, then that's that's a powerful witness to people. And if we aren't, if we're the opposite of that, or we're showing worldly values, uh, even though we claim to be Christians, we we show people hypocrites. You know, yeah. we're hypocrites. Well, you you mentioned kind of all these different areas and sectors and industries where corruption and scandal has taken place, and I know I work in primarily in the church context where, you, like you mentioned, we've seen so many big names and churches go through scandals, and I I wonder, and this is something I noticed in the book, you you write about how success can become an idol, and I wonder if if in some ways that that's that idol has has creeped into church, and I and mm-hmm. I'm curious. Talk about the ways that success can become an idol, and the ways that it really corrupts. Yeah, Lauren. So think about the context, the culture in which we live uh, in America. You know, we, we talk about the American dream, and the American dream is essentially about anybody can be a success. You know, anybody yeah. can achieve anything. And so there's already a bit of an idolatrous uh, attraction to success and, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we're, we're literally marinating in a success culture. Uh, uh, we celebrate the wealthiest people on the Forbes, 500, Forbes yeah. 400 list. Yeah. Uh, we, we follow the most famous celebrities, the most successful athletes, um, um, the, the mega pastors, mega church pastors with the largest churches or the fastest growing churches, yeah. the, the, the best selling authors. Um, and, and it just, uh, it literally, it, I, I talk about it as almost like carbon monoxide. It's a colorless, odorless gas that we're all breathing, this six, success gas. Yeah. And it, it can be deadly. Uh, it can be, it can be deadly because Christians are not immune 
to the temptations of power, money, sex, um, fame. Um, these, these temptations are temptations in front of all of us. And unless you are anchored in your faith to the values of Christ, the character mm-hmm. of Christ, um, you're going to be pulled in those directions. Um, you know, there's the, the old story, it was a, a, I'm trying to remember, Jason and the Argonauts, where, you know, they had to sail past the sirens. And, of course, the sirens lured the sailor, sailors into the rocks, mm-hmm. into shipwrecks. Yeah. And, and was it Jason that said, tie me, to the, tie me to the mast, you know, so I'm not tempted by the sirens to, uh, you know, to, to go in that direction. And so we, had, we as Christians kind of have to tie ourselves to the, the Christian master, maybe the cross, yeah. to yeah. say, look, we're, we are not going to be motivated by money, power, success, fame. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not our thing. That's not, Jesus never called us to be successful or powerful or, you know, any of those things. Well, this leads right into something I want to talk about. Uh, what I what I read and what I believe and what I think you promote in the book is this idea: rather than success, instead of faithfulness. And you you tell this beautiful story that I had actually heard someone else share recently about Mother Teresa, and really really uh, struck me in a profound way too. Uh, do you want to share kind of that context about the story about Mother Teresa and faithfulness, and kind of um, the difference between outcomes and, and kind of motives there? Yeah. In fact, that story was really the seed motivation for writing this book. And uh, here, here's the story. Quite a few years ago, Senator Mark Hatfield from Oregon visited Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Senator Hatfield, who was very committed to ending hunger and, you know, social justice issues in, in the Senate, um, you know, he's looking analytically around him, and he's seeing this four-foot-nine-inch nun in a little tiny, you know, ministry in the middle of an ocean of poverty in Calcutta. And, you know, he quickly does the math and realizes, Mother Teresa, you're never going to succeed at ending poverty, even in Calcutta, let alone the rest of the world. Um, you know, don't you kind of feel like a failure? I mean, when you look at the size of the problem and the, the size of the solution that you're bringing, you know, don't you sometimes feel like a failure? And what Mother Teresa said to him in the next moment, in my view, totally turned any secular notions of leadership and success inside out. And, yeah. and she said, she said, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful, Yeah, faithful, not successful. So I think that's about 14 words she said that in. And and so when you think about that notion, uh, again, marinating in a success culture, uh, if you have children, you want them to be successful, mm-hmm. you're trying to get them in the best schools, get them the best grades, get them on the best sports teams, <laughs> get them a scholarship, you know, you want them to grow up to be doctors or lawyers or billionaires or whatever you want them to grow up to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and then think about that statement of Mother Teresa, God did not call us to be successful. So. What does that mean? It means that, you know, when we stand before the Lord someday and give an accounting for our lives, he will not be impressed by the titles on our business card. Mm-hmm. He will not be impressed by the size of our bank account or the growth rate of our church mm-hmm. uh, or um, the real estate deals we've we've done. Um, uh, those are not the things that will be uh, significant or impressive to God. He will ask about how we lived our lives in front of others. What kind of witness were we for the gospel? Uh, how did we treat the people 
entrusted to our leadership. This was a leadership book. Yeah. Um, the people you led, uh, did you see them as pawns that you could use to further your career? Or did you look at them as people made in God's image who you were there to serve? Yeah. And, and you were there to help them realize their hopes and dreams uh, ahead of your own. Yeah. Um, so those are the things, faithfulness, uh, uh, not success, that I think, uh, I think Mother Teresa hit the nail right on the head. Um, God calls us to be faithful, not successful. It's such a, a beautiful story and a beautiful image. And, you know, it, it, it applies everywhere, no matter the industry, no matter your job or, or capacity role. Um, I'm grateful. I remember even in my younger days in Bible college reading about it and really reading another author who kind of made the same point kind of struck me in the same way where we'd been even as church leaders so conditioned to think that success was the ultimate. That's what God wanted. And and it was really quite even unpopular back then uh, for this author to say that faithfulness is what matters. You know, Lauren, in the last chapter of my book, I tell the story of the pastor who married my wife and I, and he was a small town, small church pastor in Ithaca, New York, uh, next to the Cornell campus. And uh, he was very instrumental in me coming to faith and and then deepening my faith uh, through some discipleship and time spent with him. He's now 90 years old. His wife, I think, is 93 um, he never pastored a church bigger than 200 people. In many, in, in some cases, it was 40 or 50 people, yeah. you know, and he never wrote a book. He never appeared on the cover of Christianity Today, <laughs> and yet he was faithful. He, he was faithful. He, he influenced generations of Cornell students who came through that campus and, and went off to do amazing things. I mean, I ended up leading World Vision, and I know there were other others that led big ministries and, and had roles in Campus Crusade. And and then people in the secular, you know, people that went into government in Washington, D.C. and um, in the corporate world. And he influenced, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of young students at a very formative age. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, we're going to see someday in the when we meet the Lord, we're going to see that some of these small church pastors are going to get... M- many more accolades from God than some of the megachurch pastors wow. that, yeah. you know, that grew a church of 20 or 30,000 people and published 10 books. And and, uh, uh, and not, not that a megachurch pastor can't be faithful as well, right. but again, God is not impressed with, with, with your outcomes and with your success metrics. You know, he's, he's looking at the heart. Uh, you remember the scene in the Bible where Samuel goes to uh, the home of Jesse to meet Jesse's, I think, 10 sons. Yeah. And Jesse Jesse brings out son number one, number two, he goes all the way through to number nine. And Samuel says, no, none of these, none of these sons. And and all of the, all of these young men were like, you know, Sigma Chi, <laughs> letter, lettered in four sports, you know, tall, dark, and handsome, right? And, uh, and Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And Well, I've got David, you know, the runt of the litter. He's out, he's out tending the sheep. Why, why do you want to meet him? And I want to meet David. And, and, and of course, Samuel selects David, who is going to be anointed as the king of Israel. And, and he says something like, you know, God looks on the inside, man looks on the outside and judges by the outside, but God looks at the heart. And, you know, we later see that David was a leader after God's own heart. Not that he was perfect, but um, so I, I think this, uh, 
this success uh, obsession has crept into the church, right, in an unhealthy way. And and when you're trying to make your church successful, you will do things that maybe are not faithful. Wow. Uh, uh, but if you're trying to make your church faithful, uh, maybe you'll be successful in terms of growth and dynamism and reach, uh, or maybe you'll be that country pastor who never pastors a church bigger than 200, but you were faithful for 40 years uh, in ministry. And you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. You know, I was listening to a podcast this morning uh, talking about how the, the the median church size in America is 75. I mean, the yeah, median I church mean, size uh, in America is 75. That means there's a lot of young men and women out there pastoring you know, and being the chief cook and bottle washer, you know, balancing the books, preaching on Sunday, me, singing in the there. choir, playing the organ, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, baking for the uh, the church uh, social or whatever. Uh, and uh, and the pastor who married us, uh, Pastor Merrill Stern in in uh, in Ithaca, New York, he and his wife were like that. I mean, they sang in the choir. He preached. Uh, you know, they cleaned up after the service. They prepared the communion wafers. <laughs> they did it all. Well, yeah, I love this. I love this point you're making because it's so important. And and I'll even say just for me, um, you know, realizing that what's required of me, I mean, I don't, I don't want to quote unquote fail in anything, but knowing that for me that, you know, faithfulness is what God asks of me is, is so helpful for me. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and still think in this kind of church setting, but another, another kind of theme that I noticed in the book is just kind of the way that you, you, you kind of, I guess you'd say I, you invite, uh, followers of Jesus to really reconsider their approach to business and the ways to living out their faith in the business world. And this stood out to me in particular, because as I mentioned before recording, uh, I'm working on an MBA right now, and we've mm-hmm. been, we've been reading some authors who have really been talking a lot about, uh, pocket theory, which I, th- if you're familiar with that kind of this idea of there's the, you know, there's a Sunday, basically the idea that, you know, you, you go be a Christian on Sunday and then you can do whatever you want on Monday. Um, and there's this real emphasis now on really being intentional and, and living out your faith every day of the week. Um, so I'm curious if you could share more kind of about this emphasis of living out, uh, living out a calling. I'm not sure if you use that word in the book, but I've I've heard other yeah. church leaders talk about uh, business people uh, having a calling in life, and you you, you kind of use similar words of having a purpose in life and surrendering to that purpose. Uh, talk more if you can about how uh, folks can be more intentional about discovering their purpose and living it out intentionally as a, as a follower mm-hmm. of Jesus. Yeah, so what you call pocket theory, I call compartmentalization of the Christian life. And so we, as, as Christians, are very good at compartmentalizing, right? You know, we, and the classic example is that we're a Christian on Sunday, and then Monday when we enter the workplace, we, um, you know, we, we check our faith at the door and we enter a very secular and sometimes very difficult, challenging culture that is not Christian. And, and we adopt and adapt the... Uh, that culture, and we internalize it, and we operate within that culture for five days, Monday through Friday, and then we we pick up our faith at the door on Friday night when we go home, and we put it back on. And mm-hmm. so, but you know, Christians often compartmentalize 
other aspects of their life. You know, we, uh, I talked about surrender earlier, and if we don't surrender everything, you know, some people say, well, I, Lord, I, I surrender my life to you with the following exceptions. <laughs> and those exceptions could be my career. It could be my money and my finances. It could be my bad habits. It could be my sexuality, uh, things I won't surrender to the Lord. And um, and so, again, if, if we're going to surrender, he wants all of us. You know, I sometimes use the metaphor of enlisting in the military. If you enlist in the military, um, you sign over, essentially, control of your life, where you live, what you're going to wear, what your job is, uh, you go where you're sent, you do what you're told to do, you wear the uniform they tell you to wear, and you embrace the values and principles that they drill into your head. And you can't say to your commanding officer, you know, my wife and I are going to take a month-long vacation through Europe uh, next month. Or, you know, we're in North Carolina right now, but, you know, we'd really like to live in Atlanta, so we're going to move to Atlanta. No, your life is given over to the military for as long as you serve. And so if the military requires that of us, uh, how much more should we expect our surrender to the Lord to be complete? You know, mm. that if God calls us to to do something or behave in a certain way, that it's yes, sir, we 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 want to do it. So so we compartmentalize and and I think, you know, the we have to start by realizing that our real job is to be a follower of Christ and it sits above our careers. Um, you, as you know, there's a verse in the book, 2 Corinthians 5.20, that has kind of become my life verse, and I talk a lot about this verse in the book, and it goes like this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, yeah. as though God were making his appeal through us. Yeah, I love that verse. So if we're ambassadors for Christ, and that that's everybody, every follower of Christ, uh, Paul says, you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and God is actually making his appeal to the world through you through you. So where do you work? Do you work at Amazon? Do you work at General Motors? Do you, do you work for the electric company? Mm -hmm. God is making his appeal through you in that place every day that you show up. You are the representative. And what do ambassadors do? If you're an ambassador, you're sent to Ireland to represent the United States. Uh, you are there to represent the character and values of the United States, the priority of the United States, and, and to... Uh, everything you do is to reflect positively on the United States and, and your important role of representing uh, your country to, a, to another country. So as ambassadors for Christ, um, we are called to represent him and to embody his values and character mm -hmm. uh, and, and to work toward his priorities, right? Uh, his priorities. So in the workplace, in the secular workplace, what, what are God's priorities? Well, he wants you as a follower of Christ to be a beacon of light in the darkness. He wants you to care for the people uh, under your leadership. He wants you to um, set a good example. And, and he wants you to live a life that is so uniquely different and filled with integrity that people ask you the question, why are you different? You know, why, why, why do you treat me so, so well? Why, why are you different? Why do you tend to put other people ahead of your ambitions? Um, why are you... Why do you have such integrity where you're willing to disagree with the boss when it's an issue of integrity? Um, those are the kinds of uh, impacts we can have as an ambassador. I'm thinking again of another scripture in the, the gospel where Jesus talks about, you know, how to practice leadership and not to lord it over them like the Gentiles. And that kind of servant mm -hmm. leadership uh, I'm hearing you describe fits so well uniquely with that, too. 
You know, one of the metaphors I like to use, so I, I think bad leaders um, might think like this. They're, they're in a workplace and they've got a team of people under them and they see those people as a means to their end. They want more money, more promotions, more power, more success. And so the people around them are just pawns on a game board, right? And I can use these pawns uh, to get ahead and I can be manipulative and, and, and cruel and whatever I have to do uh, to get ahead. I'm going to use people. So that, that's a totally different approach to leadership, whereas the Christian leader looks at the people around them and says, how can, well, first of all, look at the people around you and say, they're, they're people made in the image of God. And they have, they have talents and abilities and insights that I don't have as a leader. They're different from me. They're not better or worse. They're different. Um, and how can I help them release their giftedness, release their talents? Almost like a, an orchestra conductor looks at her musicians and says, how can I bring the beautiful gifts out of these musicians so that they come together and, and, and play an amazing score of music? And, uh, and her success is when all the, all the players are successful, right? And, and that's what makes her feel successful is when she's brought out the, the best in the people that she's conducting. And I think that's a beautiful uh, picture of Christian leadership and what it should be and can be. Yeah. I'm curious, um, again, I work in a church context. I'm curious, how do you think churches could do better to kind of connect Sunday to Monday and encourage, you know, followers of Jesus to better put their faith and their practice in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that's a discipleship question. Um, how do you get people to be deeper and deeper disciples of Christ, and as that happens, it becomes more and more obvious, you know, what, how, how you should behave and act in the workplace. But, uh, but I, I think, again, it comes back to the pastor constantly reminding the members of their congregation what their real job is. I, I talk in the book, there's a chapter called, You Have This One Job, right? You have this one. Now, that, that's something we often say cynically when, you know, we're at a restaurant. Uh, remember when we used to go to restaurants? Yeah. Uh, we're at a restaurant, and the waiter or waitress is clueless. They, they, they take 30 minutes before they bring you a menu. Um, then it's another 20 minutes before they come back to take your order. Then they get the order mixed up, and, you know, and on and on and on. And then you wait another 30 minutes for your check, and you can't get their attention. And, and you want to say, yeah, you had this one job. You know, I mean, can, can you not do your one job that you're here to do mm-hmm. uh, when you lose a little patience with somebody? And I, I think the Lord looks at us that way and says, you know, I gave you this one job to be my ambassadors. That's the only thing I've asked you to do, to be my ambassadors, to love your neighbors as yourself, um, to go and make disciples of other people and other nations. Uh, and, and, and so that's your one job. And you're... What you do nine to five on Monday through Friday, that's not your highest priority. That, that's the place where you live out your one job. So when I was the CEO of Lenox China, yeah, my, I had a job to sell China and market it and, 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 uh, and make profit for the shareholders. But my real job at Lenox was Christ's ambassador. And I just, I was kind of undercover selling fine china, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um, almost like an undercover uh, policeman or, yeah. you know, or spy in another country yeah. where you've got a, you've got a job, but it's your cover job. And so I think pastors need to remind people that 
you are, wherever you go tomorrow morning, you are the carrier of the message of the gospel uh, and the love of Christ. You are the tangible hands and feet of Christ in our world, and your behavior needs to reflect it. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, this is kind of off. This is kind of off topic here, but this was just a theme that I wanted to make sure we had time to to talk to you about. You write in the book something about not trusting or valuing, maybe perhaps the way to better way to say it, leaders with limps. And I know for me, I've I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't trust someone who hasn't quote unquote failed. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us more kind of about what you mean by the leaders with limbs. Actually, the, the, the phrase that I've heard is, you know, never trust a leader without a limp. And, uh, and what that means is if, if, if you're working for a leader that has never failed mm-hmm. at anything, um, has never gone through a difficult trial or hardship that might result in a limp, right, you know, uh, metaphorically, mm-hmm. um, watch out because a leader like that can be can be dangerous uh, can be arrogant yeah. um, can be egotistical and you know I say in the book that I was fired twice mm-hmm. um, pe- people who look at my career well you were the CEO of Parker Brothers and you were the CEO of Lennox China and then you're the CEO of World Vision you've never failed no I got fired twice I got fired from the CEO job at Parker Brothers when I was 35 years old uh, and then I got fired again from the Franklin Mint less than a year later. So I got fired twice in a year. That's hard to do. Yeah. And, um, but when I got fired, it, 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 it kind of rocked my world. And it, I, I say in the book that it was almost like God was pulling me out of the game, right? The coach was pulling me out of the game because mm-hmm. he didn't like my behavior on the field. And so he put me on the bench and he had to do some business with me. Hmm. And if you, if I'm honest with myself, when I was in my early thirties and being incredibly successful at an early age, CEO at 33, I was pretty full of myself. And uh, I was starting to compartmentalize my faith from my career and my work. And uh, and I think God wanted to tell me that, look, hotshot, you know, um, that's not that's not the deal we had when you surrendered back in graduate school and you said, not my will, but thy will, Lord. Hmm. And I want to get some priorities straight in your life. And during that you know, virtually a year of being unemployed. Um, you know, I had from very deep times with God and with my quiet times. And and the lesson I learned from that was this lesson I've been talking about today of, you know, my real job is to, uh, well, I think I said it, to love, serve, and obey Christ uh, wherever I am, to love, serve, and obey Christ wherever I am. And when I, when I finally got back to work at Lennox after all of this, I went in as a division president of a small division, and uh, I started my day with that prayer every day. Lord, I am not here to sell fine china. I am here to love, serve, and obey you in this place. Please help me do that today. And if I sell some fine china, that's good too, because uh, that's you know that's my cover job, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm paid to do. And uh, it just helped me get my priorities right they weren't right before, you know, it was, it it was backward before. And, and after 11 years at Lennox, trying to live that out in the workplace, God called me to World Vision and said, okay, now I've got another job. You've been faithful in this. Now I've got another job I want you to do. And that was the call to World Vision. Uh, It reminds me of the story about the, the, the manager and the three, what, the, the three, uh, 
the three employees who gives them the parable of the tenants? Um, is it connect yeah. there? Do you think what's the, I'm kind of pulling this out of thin air. Yeah. Um, does that connect? Well, the, the parable of the talents, talents thank is, you. A, is a, is about, you know, in fact, I talk about that in the book and, and I, I, I say, it's not a parable about performance, uh, it's kind of a parable about effort. You know, he, hmm. uh, the first two servants invest in the master's business, if you will. So the master leaves them some money and goes away and comes back. And the first two got a big return on investment. In other words, what they did is they said, we understand the master and he expects us, he has expectations of us. He wants us to invest this money in a way that will produce a profit and a return for him. And so we've done that. And one had five talents and turned it into 10, and I think one had three talents and turned it into six. Um, but he praised them equally, even though the, the one had a bigger responsibility than the other, he praised them equally. But the third person, uh, the third servant, uh, did not, uh, he kind of buried the money in the ground and uh, was afraid to lose it, and he didn't work on behalf of the master's interests. And when the master came back, he said, what did you do with what I entrusted you with? And mm -hmm. he said, well, here's your talent back. I, I protected it. And he got angry. He said, you know, you weren't supposed to sit on this. Yeah. You were supposed to, you understand who I am and what my goals and objectives are. And you were entrusted with a responsibility to do something with this and you didn't do it. So you were the unfaithful servant and he had some pretty harsh words. So just to translate that to modern day, um, if you go to your workplace and you don't do anything to further the master's objectives in business, why is he going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? He, he's going to say, you, you know, you went to work and you did nothing yeah. to further my kingdom. You did nothing to represent me as an ambassador. You, uh, yeah, you, it, it was all about you. It was all about, you know, you getting promoted and making money. And uh, so we're, you're not going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, so I, that's kind of the, the way I would interpret that. Yeah, terrible, but. I, I appreciate the the ethos behind this book. You know, I, I'm a I'm a pastor, and and clergy often use the words of calling and and purpose and and vocation, and we kind of set this kind of um, distinction between clergy people and and non clergy people as if one has a higher calling. And and if I'm hearing you right, I think your point is we all have a we all have a calling from God. We're supposed to follow. Uh, and it just looks like different contexts in which we live that out. Well, think about the world if every Christian was a pastor of a, <laughs> of, of a church. You know, it's like there there wouldn't be anybody out in the world uh, to show people what Christians look like. You know, and and uh, so you know, I'm a big believer that you know we are a sent people. Um, uh, Jesus said toward the end of his life, "As the Father has sent me, I now send you into the world." Right, and and the mission he gave us was 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 very simple. Um, I talk about the great commandment and the great uh, commission, right? So basically, those are the two things God told us to do. Christianity is not that difficult to understand. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, um, which means we're to be agents of his love to everyone. Everyone is our neighbor. I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan says everyone's your neighbor. Anybody you come in contact with, anybody you're aware of that you know, uh, you, you can make a difference in their life. They're your neighbor, so love them as you would yourself. And then he, the Great Commission was go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I have taught you. So Jesus wants us to make more Christians who will then go out and love their neighbor as themselves and make more disciples 
who will then go out and love their neighbor as their self, who will make more disciples. And so the movement grows, right? The Christian movement grows. Mm-hmm. And that's part of uh, God's plan to reconcile the world, uh, to to make the world more pleasing to him, to uh, it's kind of the redemptive power of God. And so we're the agents of that redemption. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Um, uh, and so we're sent into the world and we're sent everywhere in the world. We're sent to be lawyers and doctors and salesmen and, and filing clerks and grocery workers and Uber drivers. And we're, we're sent everywhere because people are everywhere. Yeah. And we're sent to people. We're, we're sent to people with this mission of loving them in the name of Christ and, and uh, being ambassadors for the good news of the gospel and it's pretty simple. And so it's about getting our priorities straight that, you know, I'm first and foremost an ambassador of Christ that's been sent into the world. And, and so we all have that calling. We all have that same calling. And, and some will have a calling to pastoring, and some will have a calling to humanitarian work, and some will have a calling to the marketplace. Yeah. Well, this is a great conversation. Appreciate your, your perspectives here. Let's take a quick break. And we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Richard Stearns. And uh, Richard, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as yeah. you'd like to. Now, I'm I'm imagining you're one of my uh, few guests who might possibly have actually met the Pope. Uh, but if, if you were Pope for a day, what might that day look like? Yeah, um, I have never met the Pope, but I really like the current Pope, uh, Pope Francis. I, I really like um, the way he has uh, carried himself and spoken and written, you know, since he's been Pope. And I think what I like most about him is the way he lifted up the poor and the downtrodden right from the very beginning, um, literally washing the feet of prisoners and uh, Muslim prisoners uh, and um you know, just showing compassion and, and the love of Christ to uh, especially the poor and the downtrodden, um, you know. Uh, and so, I, you know, if I was Pope for a day, I would try to lift up uh, to Christians the importance of uh, going into the brokenness of our world and, and lifting up those that have been beaten down and helping the poor and uh, you know, making the the poor and the disenfranchised uh, our top priority as Christians. Great. Who is a theologian or Christian uh, historical figure you might want to meet or bring back to life? Yeah, um, I could say Lazarus, but that's already been done. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I would love to bring one of the disciples back to life, someone that actually walked with Christ for three years, and I would sit and listen to their stories. As long as they would talk, I would listen. But so maybe Peter or Matthew, uh-huh. um, um, not even Paul, I think Peter or Matthew, because they were the eyewitnesses throughout the three years of the ministry of Jesus and would have some amazing stories to tell Um that didn't get written down in in the Gospels, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, I I would love to talk to one of those eyewitnesses. Well, as the as the end of Gospel as the end of the Gospel of John says, right? There are still many many books upon books to have been could have been written about the life of Jesus. So yes, got to be good stories in there. More right? Yes, yes. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, I'm I'm going to answer this from the perspective of Christianity in America, and my answer my answer is maybe a little bit harsh, but I think 
History will reflect that the wealthiest nation of Christians in the history of the world failed to use their wealth for the benefit of their fellow man. And, uh, and instead of tithing, uh, you know, the biblical 10%, uh, the wealthiest nation of Christians gave about 2.4% of their income to the church. Those are the stats. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the Lord might say to us someday, you know, I, I gave you the resources. I gave you the medical knowledge, the scientific knowledge. I gave you everything you needed to lift a billion of the poorest people in the world out of poverty, and instead you spend it all on yourself. And uh, that's pretty harsh, but, I mean, that's what the numbers show us right now uh, in terms of how we're using. And I once did a talk on um, what it would take to eradicate uh, all the poverty in the world that is addressable. Not all poverty is easily addressable, you know, refugees and wars and things like that, but if you just looked at the addressable poverty in the world, what would it take? And it would basically take, if if just the American Christians would give 1% more of their income every year, in 20 years, we could have eradicated all of the addressable poverty in the world, achieved universal education, universal access to clean water, the end of hunger. Wow. It would only take 1%, but we don't, we've been, we've been unwilling to give at that level and I think the most underpreached sermon in America is the one on giving. Uh, I know most pastors hate to yeah, preach it. You're not wrong, uh, but it's probably one of the most important sermons for people to hear because it's it's not our money; it's the Lord's money. Mm-hmm. And the, again, the parable of the talents. He's entrusted us with this yeah. money, and in the end, he's going to say, "What did you do with it? What did you do with it?" So, it's a harsh but a good answer. <laughs> Talk about then what what you might hope for for the future of Christianity. Wow. Uh, well, my hope would be, I think our Christianity in our country has taken a very bad wrong turn. Uh, and that wrong turn is into the culture war and politics. And I think that the waging of the culture war and the use of politics seeking political power mm-hmm. has been a very corrupting Influence and it has discredited um, the Christian faith in in many places uh, in our country. And I can't imagine uh, some non-believer in America looking at what uh, you know evangelical Christianity has done over the last 20, 30 years uh, with politics and with uh, uh, the culture war and saying, "Yeah, I want to be one of them." <laughs> you know, I want to be. <laughs> I want to be them. And I think, you know, uh, we've taken the approach, I say we, uh, when I talk about kind of the broader evangelical movement, Mm -hmm. we've taken the approach that the ends justify the means. So um, if we want this outcome, uh, we'll do anything to get it. You know, we'll, if we we want to end abortion in America, which, you know, uh, it's a reasonable position for someone to have who's a Christian, but if we want to end abortion in America... um, We'll do anything. We'll, we'll elect any politician that will do it, no matter who they are or what their character is or or what baggage comes with that. It's kind of a deal with deal with the devil, right? Yeah. You know. And I love a quote by uh, George Bernard Shaw, who who once said about politics: "Never wrestle with pigs. Mm-hmm. You both get dirty, and the pigs like it." <laughs> <laughs> 
And when, when we get involved with politics, and you can look, you're probably more of a church historian, but you can look at when the popes got in bed with the kings back in the, you know, in the 1400s, 1300s, whenever the church got involved with politics and power, it always corrupted the church. You know, yeah. you both got dirty, but the pigs liked it. I was yeah. just talking with a colleague yesterday who's, who's studying uh, Victorian era, era literature and she was talking to me about Henry VIII and Bloody Mary and talking mm-hmm. about how it wasn't really a conflict between Catholics and Protestants. It was a conflict between this pursuit of power, which speaks right yes. to what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, in, in our current context uh, where we talk about the culture war, what if instead of waging war on the culture of America, what if we waged love on the culture of America. Uh, which approach would win more converts, right? Which approach would attract people to the gospel? The approach of uh, people that say, we love you unconditionally. We're, we're here to help the homeless. We're here to help the single mother. We're help to, here to help the refugee. We're help, here to help new immigrants to our country get settled and adjusted. We're, uh, we're here to visit with the elderly who are lonely. Yeah. Um, our only goal is to, to love people and to do it in the name of Christ. I think that would attract a lot more, um, you know, people to the faith than, you know, wagging our finger and saying, shame on you, you know, we're going to pass a law to forbid you from doing that. And we're, <laughs> we're going to, uh, we're going to take power and uh, we're going to, we're going to punish people like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, because we're judging you and we're judging you every day. And, um, so it's just, I don't know, just, uh, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, when I came of age, we used to say, make love, not war, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, not not a total analogous thing, but, you know, what if we love people more than we judge them? And, you know, um, I think it would be a whole different future for the Christian faith in our country. Well, this has been some great conversation. I really appreciate your time and perspectives. Uh, where can folks find out more about you and get a copy of your book? Well, the book's available, you know, pretty much anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, christianbooks.com. I've also got a podcast, Lauren. Um, I've done 10 episodes with interviewing Christian leaders, kind of seasoned Christian leaders. So Gary Haugen, the president of International Justice Mission, and Governor Bill Haslam, the former two-term governor of Tennessee. And I do an interview with my successor at World Vision, Edgar Sandoval, who's the current CEO there who's got a phenomenal story uh, coming from Venezuela as a, as an 18-year-old with $50 in his pocket and working his way up the corporate ladder. And I've got some great female leaders, Nicole Massey-Martin and Joanne Lyons and Jenny Yang from World Relief that I've, I've done interviews with. So yeah, and that's the name of the podcast is the same as the book, Lead Like It Matters to God, wherever you get your podcast, you can find it there. Cool. I'll put a link in the, uh, link in the show notes for folks. There you go. And hey, go to worldvision.org and sponsor a child. Uh, You'll feel better about yourself. Awesome. Well, thanks again, and uh, may God's peace be with you. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again, and go in peace.